Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us beside the still waters. You have caused us to lie down in green pastures. You are our shepherd, the one who leads us even through the deep and dark valleys. Father, I, I thank you that Christ became not only the sacrificial lamb, but the great high priest, and that he is waiting for our entrance into the kingdom to enjoy him forever. And the Spirit of God is dwelling in our hearts in the meantime to uh, empower us to live as you would have us to live here. And Father, I pray that you'll create within us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and for your word and an understanding of what is true concerning the Word of God and concerning the significance and the importance and the power of prayer. Lord, I pray that we will be sheep that will hear your voice and follow you closely. I ask, Lord, that you will be very present in every class this morning as the Word of God is taught, that you'll bless in the service that is concurrent and the one to follow, that in every way your name will be exalted, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 28. I would like to read the first 15 verses to begin with. Numbers 28, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings by fire, a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old, without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering, which was ordained in Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. Then the libation, which with it shall be a fourth of a hen for each lamb, in the holy place you shall pour out a libation of strong drink to the Lord. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, as the grain offering of the morning, as its libation you shall offer it, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old without defect, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and its libation. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, in addition to the continual burnt offering and its libation. Then at the beginning of each of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls and one ram, seven male lambs, one year old without defect, and three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull, two-tenths of fine uh, flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for one ram and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering for each lamb, for a burnt offering of soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. And their libations shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, and a third of a hen for the ram, and a fourth of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. And one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered with its libation in addition to the continual burnt offering. That's the word of the Lord to the Israelite nation. By the way, just um, for something to relate to as we go along here, where it says you shall offer there a tenth of an ephah, 
A tenth of an ephah would be about just under two dry quarts of measure. And the hin is more or less a gallon, close to a gallon. So a fourth of a gallon would be a quart. So whenever you see those kinds of figures, you can kind of figure you know, how much grain, how much wine, how much oil we're, we're talking about using that as a measure. As we discovered in the previous chapter, the time of Moses' departure from this earth was, was close. And Moses' successor had been identified, and he had been commissioned, he had been ordained, and so really things were all set, it would seem, for Moses to go ahead and, and pass on into the presence of the Lord. But, but God had more things for him to do yet. For instance, as we see in this passage, God had further instructions that he wanted to give to Israel through that spokesperson who had been their spokesperson for 40 years. There was to be a consistency here. It was to be for the new generation as it had been for the earlier generation. The same person giving the word of God. I mean, a new generation of leadership has arisen. The old generation, which had first heard these instructions as they were recorded in Exodus and as they're recorded in Leviticus, that generation is buried in a desert. So the new leaders are here. And it seems that God wanted these new leaders, although they could read what Moses wrote down about, of God's instructions, they could read Leviticus as Moses had written it out. But God wanted them to hear with their own ears and to see with their own eyes because they would be the generation that would take the people into the land. And he wanted them to have no excuse. It's sort of like when Jesus died, there were still the disciples. And the disciples continued to minister for decades afterwards. In fact, John probably lived to close to the end of the century or even past the end of the first century possibly. And he ministered the word directly, even as he had heard it, to, to the people. And of course, he wrote it down under the inspiration of the Spirit, as the other disciples did, or several of them. And, and so it would be here. Uh, Moses would speak directly to these individuals, and then, then they could teach their children. These were the actual words of Moses, which we heard with their own ears, coming straight from the heart of God. And the idea, of course, was that they would set a precedence for exact obedience, exact obedience. This passage, which we read this morning, is probably not one that you would read uh, every night before you went to bed to console you and to get you prepared for a good night's rest. But not if you really understand what God is saying here. This passage, first of all, speaks of the daily offerings. And then it goes on and, and speaks of the additions that were to be made when the Sabbath came around and then when the new moon or the first of the month came around. Uh, the wording of verse 2 here, where, where the Lord says, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings by fire of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. The wording of this verse makes it clear that God expected exact obedience to his word, that this was of great importance. It wasn't kind of approximate. Oh dear, we forgot the offering today. It's noon. Well, maybe we could go ahead and do it. God will understand. We slept in this morning. You know, we forgot to set our clocks back or ahead or whatever, you know. No, no, that, that was not acceptable. They were to carry out the sacrifice exactly according to this prescription. This much grain mixed with this much oil, this much wine to be poured out, this animal without defect given at this time of the day. 
the, the, the formula and the timing was to be exact. Now why? Was it because God needed to be placated by these rituals? That God had to have something done at just the magical hour or he was unhappy? Well, we know better than that, I think. None of this was done for God's sake. What does God need with blood and meat and, and grain and wine? You know, good does it do to him? I mean, God is all sufficient. He has need of nothing. God has need of nothing. He definitely didn't need all this burnt meat. It was done for the sake of the people. It was done for the sake of the Israelite nation. The human tendency, you may have noticed this, the human tendency is to be careless, particularly when it comes to spiritual matters. And the reason is because spiritual matters tend to be intangible. You can't just put your hand right on it. No, it's, it's not like if you get to work late, you have a supervisor that's on your back. You get to church late, you know, somebody might say, oh, you're late today. But, I mean, who's on your back? Anybody on your back? No. The repercussions of spiritual failure are less obvious, less immediate. And so there, there's a great likelihood that in spiritual matters, uh, people are going to be acting in a more haphazard and slipshod way. This is very dangerous because a lifestyle like that begins to sedate the mind and the heart to the place where what is important keeps getting pushed off and pushed off until it's too late. Until it's too late. You know, you, you've heard it said many times that uh, God's voice is very small in our joy, but it's very large in our pain. And that's why there's so much pain, because we tend to be very deaf. And God wants us to wake up and to walk with him before it's too late. Not only for et our eternal soul, but for the good of this life. This is a hard concept for most people to get particularly those who are outside the framework of the church. They, they can't understand why it would be important. Uh, or that is, let me, let me say it this way. They can't understand how it could make their life better to do what Christians do, because all they see Christians doing is going to church and singing a bunch of hymns and sitting there bored to, to death listening to somebody talk from an ancient book, you know, and going out and being goody-two-shoes. What kind of a life is that? You know, most people will view. But from inside the church, I hope we view it differently. You know, we sense the joy of the fellowship, a fellowship you can't find out in the world, not even in a bar. You know, because the guy who's friendly to you at the bar it only is because he's got, you know, half a dozen sheets in the wind, he doesn't even know who he's talking to, you know. In, in the fellowship of the church, we can truly be joyful in one another's presence and we really can care for one another. And we can have true friends. And walking the life of the Christian in obedience to the word causes us to have an inner, an inner joy and contentment that the world can't possibly begin to know. You've heard it said so many times, I'm sure, that when, when F Wall Street uh, collapsed in 1929 and over the next few years, uh, there were all these former rich people jumping off of buildings and killing themselves, you know, making smash hits on Broadway because there was no hope left in life. Their, their sole joy was gone, and that was their wealth. But our joy, hopefully, is not based in our wealth, our, our dollar wealth. It's, it's, it's in our wealth in the Lord. And God wants his people, I mean, God wants people to know that. <laughs> that walking with the Lord is not a giant pain, 
Because God isn't this, you know, great killjoy going around saying, oh, that's fun for people. I'm going to prohibit it. You know, that's, that's not the way he is. He, he gives us these good things. You know, Scripture tells us, who knows how to give good, good gifts like God? Nobody. You know, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. To whom does it come? To his people who are walking in obedience to him. And so that's why God puts these hard things on people so that we will learn to be exact in our obedience so that God can be exact in his blessing. I think there are several factors that should be noted concerning the sacrifices commanded in this passage. First of all, notice the regularity of these sacrifices, the regularity of the sacrifices. They were to occur at every sunrise and at every sunset, day in, day out, without fail. You know the song, right? Sunrise, sunset. Sunrise, sunset. Well, there was to be a lamb sacrificed at sunrise and a lamb sacrificed at sunset. 365 days out of the year, without fail. This served as a constant reminder to the people that they were God's community. And God was with them every single day. Without fail, God was with them. And it, it reinforced the fact that they were ever in need of cleansing from sin. Is there a day when you could go through the whole day and say at the end of the day, I have not sinned? Well, I, I suppose early in your Christian life you could say that. Because you go through your early Christian life and you, you didn't get drunk today and you didn't knock anybody down today, and, and so you didn't sin. But the longer you walk with the Lord, the more we realize that it's the thoughts we have and the desires and the attitudes which display, you know, that, that sinful nature. And you may not have knocked somebody down today, but you may have wanted to knock somebody down today, you know. And, and you may not have committed adultery today, but you may have thought about it, you know, today. And, and as a result, it is sin and it needs cleansing. And they were made aware of that as the lamb died at sunrise and as the lamb died at sunset and as the blood was sacrificed. They were reminded of their constant need of cleansing. But on top of that, there is the truth that comes through the regularity of the sacrifices. If it becomes an absolute event which transpires every day, I mean, you know at sunrise, you know at sunset, that lamb is dying for your sin. If you know that's happening, from the time you're old enough to understand anything and you grow up in that kind of a society, it becomes so integrated into you that if it ever stops, you're totally destroyed. You don't know how to function. You know, it's kind of like when you read in the Psalms, when the Israelites got carried off into Babylon, you know, they, they, they wept and they sung these songs and they hung up their harps and, you know, it was like tragedy had come. They, they had been wiped out as a people spiritually, and, and they were totally rootless and groundless and sheep without shepherds. So this, this constant sacrifice became the, the routine. The, it's sort of like the tuning fork of the society. I think a second major factor was that the sacrifices were meaningless if performed perfunctorily. They had to be carried out as an act of obedience by a humble and repentant heart. But just to go and say, well, it's time to make a sacrifice, you know, pour out this thing, burn it up, and go off and do the things you really want to do. Why bother? It was a meaningless thing. If one was not living 
a life of faith and obedience, and the sacrifices actually became an affront to God. You read a passage that deals with that rather profoundly, the very first chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. Now as I read this, let me just um, make a statement that the first part of this chapter makes it clear that when God says Sodom and Gomorrah here, he is not talking about the literal Sodom and Gomorrah because they have been annihilated and blotted off the, world, the earth's surface a thousand years before this Isaiah wrote this. He's talking about the concept of Sodom, the concept of Gomorrah, that his people had become as if they were the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Notice that combination there. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. The gathering of God's people together in holy convocation. I can't endure those, that combination. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. What is the antidote? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. This is the repentance. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And of course, that often memorized verse, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. How? Well, through repentance and humility and coming to God and offering a sacrifice from the, from the heart and not just a, as a perfunctory thing with sin on your hands and an unbent heart. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Learn to do good, seek justice. Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. It's obvious that to God, sacrifices had meaning only if they were offered by humble and a repentant person. A third major factor to note is that these sacrifices were necessary to prepare one for the coming of Messiah. Concerning this, commentator Ronald Allen makes this statement. He says, All sacrifices, whether of the morning or evening, of Sabbath or new moon, have their ultimate meaning in the death the Savior died. Apart from his death, these sacrifices were just the killing of animals and the burning of their flesh with attendant ceremonies. After his death, sacrifices such as these were redundant, indeed offensive for they would suggest that something was needed in addition to the Savior's death. But before his death, these sacrifices were the very means God gave his people in love to help them face the enormity of their sin, the reality of their need for his grace, and in some mysterious way, 
to point them to the coming cross of Savior Jesus. So even though when we read through this passage, we think, oh, brother, all these animals and burning up all this food and pouring out all this oil and wine and seem like a big waste, you know, as, as we read about it there, but to, to understand that it was God's way of preparing people to understand what great sacrifice he would make in giving his son. I mean, you could pour all that oil in the world out and all the wine in the world out and you could burn up all the grain and kill all the animals and you wouldn't have a sacrifice that would even begin to achieve the great sacrifice that Christ made as God of gods coming in the flesh to die. What's really unfortunate about the whole thing is that very few of the Hebrews would really come to understand what this meant relative to Messiah. And when Messiah would come, they would be taught that when Messiah comes, he's supposed to lead them in victory over the Romans or whoever else and, and establish a new kingdom. And the whole concept of the suffering Savior was misunderstood except by a very few. A fourth important factor involves the soothing or pleasing aroma that is mentioned multiple times in this passage we just read. Now, we have to not anthropomorphize this thing. Just because we, when we're walking by the store and wafting off the front of the store where they're barbecuing some ribs, we think, whoa, that smells good. We, we tend to put God in that position. I mean, does God love the smell of barbecued meat? God is a spirit. Such a concept is meaningless. Spirits don't go around smelling barbecued meat, wanting, you know, wanting to have it. So this soothing aroma has absolutely nothing to do with the smoke rising up and God literally smelling it with a nose. You know, Scripture talks about the nostril of God, but, but this is an anthropomorphization, I think, is what it's supposed to be. <laughs> anthropomorphization. Unfortunately, you know, there's a whole cult that has made this thing real. As, as you're, if you're very familiar with Mormonism, you know, they make it all into real. God really has a nose, really has an arm, really has fingers, really has eyes, and all this kind of stuff. And therefore, God is just Adam, you know, Adam God, and just kind of deified and up there somewhere. But we, we understand it, I hope, as it was intended for the Hebrews to understand. This, what is this pleasing aroma? The pleasing aroma is the humble willing obedience of the people making the offering. It wasn't the smell of the burning meat. It was the joy of seeing hearts who were willingly in worship giving this to God in repentance. That was the pleasing aroma unto God. They were demonstrating by this act their love for him and their belief and their faith that he would cleanse, that he can cleanse, and that he would accept them in spite of their sin through their repentance. If we turn to Micah, chapter 6. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah, verse 6. Micah 6, 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves, does the Lord delight in, a thousand, in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the, the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is not negating the ritual. 
it's talking about the real meaning of the ritual. The ritual, ritual was an act of obedience, but the ritual had to be performed by one who believed in the God for whom the ritual was being performed. The ritual was meaningless unless, unless it was performed by one whose heart had been transformed and thereby his life had been transformed so that he thereby reflected the character of God. And what is the point? Let me just, you know this passage so well you don't even need to turn to it, but let me just read it to you. What is the point of what Paul is saying in, in the off-quoted Romans 12? He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And, and verse 2 is the key. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is and what is good, acceptable, and perfect, or complete, or mature in his sight. And the point of it all, Old Testament or New Testament, the point of all the sacrifice is regeneration. Uh, the point of the sacrifice is transformation, making a new person, a person who will think as God thinks, a person who will bring God-like characteristics into this world which is so full of sin and rot. That's why we need to be transformed in our minds so we don't think like the world thinks. And it's real hard to, to uh, avoid the way the world thinks, especially if you sit very long in front of the boob tube and, and have that stuff inundate you all day long, you know. And it's, it's constantly presenting this godless way that the world thinks. And to think in a way that is, um, displays the attributes of God is so foreign to the way the world thinks. That's why the scripture says that the world thinks that the cross of Christ is such a ludicrous thing. You know, that somebody dying on a cross 2,000 years ago should make any difference today. They think it's ludicrous because they don't understand. They don't understand this eternal truth behind the whole sacrificial system. God didn't get any joy out of all these animals dying, but it was to prepare the heart to know him and then to live for him. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. Well, their light wasn't very bright part of the time. The fifth factor focuses on the implied blessing of God upon Israel, implicit within the sheer numbers of animals that would be sacrificed and the amount of grain and the amount of oil and the amount of wine that would be poured out in libation or given to the priests, exclusive of the animals sacrificed by individuals. You know, an individual would bring a particular sacrifice for his own sin, for the sin of his family, exclusive of that, over 1,200 animals were sacrificed yearly in carrying out just the minimum required sacrifices. The daily sacrifices, the Sabbath sacrifices, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices we'll be talking about when we deal with the various festivals, in, including the Day of Atonement. 1,200 animals would die every year minimally if nobody offered any free will offerings. And so you can imagine the total number of animals that would die. In addition, one, one uh, author estimates that a ton of grain and hundreds of gallons of oil and wine were used just in the required offerings. What this implies is that since God required it, God would supply it. God would see to it that they always had not only enough animals, oil and wine and grain to carry out the offerings, but for them to be provided for adequately personally also. He wouldn't ask for that which the people couldn't provide. 
and he'd see to it that they had it if they walked in obedience to him. Well, if we look back at uh, Numbers 28, at verses 9 and 10, where it, it goes on from the daily twilight and uh, sunrise sacrifices, it goes on and gives you two verses having to do with the Sabbath. Then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old without defect, and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and its libation. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath in addition to the continual off burnt offering and its libation. And you'll find this is constantly repeated. Never did the sac Sabbath sacrifice replace the daily sacrifice. The new moon sacrifice did not replace the daily sacrifice. The Yom Kippur sacrifice did not replace the daily sacrifice. The daily sacrifice occurred no matter what else happened. So it's all on top of. So the Sabbath day offering of these two lambs is made in addition to the morning and the evening sacrifice, which was a daily sacrifice. The purpose of these two male lambs being offered on a Sabbath was to mark the Sabbath as separate from the other days of the week as a holy day. Set aside, of course, for the honor of God in honoring his completion of creation and the day of rest, which he instituted on behalf of his people. It was not designated by the Israelites as the day of worship. The Sabbath was not designated in Scripture as the day of worship. Because to the Israelites, every day was a day of worship. It was the day of rest, a day when they ceased working. They did not do anything special that day. They didn't go and have a special service on the Sabbath in Scripture. They simply didn't work that day. They had family time, if you will. Uh, they had contemplation time. That was the Sabbath to Israel. We, of course, have designated Sunday as the day of worship. Well, that's not necessarily bad, as long as we don't therefore exclude the other six days as being days in which we should worship. I think we should worship God every day of the week. We come together to worship Him in a special corporate way on Sunday, and that's good. Then as you read on again in, in the rest of the passage that I read already this morning, verses 11 through 15, we move on to the um, sacrifices of the new moon. Now these, again, were sacrifices which were made in addition to the daily sacrifice. Eleven more animals would be slain on the day of the new moon. The day of the moon, new moon was the beginning of the month. Every month began with the first new moon. And so the months were 28-day months throughout the year. And of course, the grain, the wine, the oil that went along with the 11 animals would be, would be offered at the same time. But what you'll notice is that this is called a day of celebration and worship. It was a special day to worship God, and it was a day of celebration. It wasn't a kind of jaw on, your gr on the ground day, oh dear me, another day, Lord. But it was a day of joy, a day of celebration. The land was a gift from God. The animals and the oil and the wine, it was all a gift from God, and so is time. Time is a gift from God. You know, I think if we viewed it more that way, we'd be a little less bored and less have it, less have it hanging on our hands and, and less be hoping that all these days will go by so we can do this thing, you know. I mean, it's always good to look forward to something, but not if it negates all the days in front of it. 
the way we set up our schedule, sometimes that's hard. You know, we say, this is the first day of school and this is the last day of school. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, <laughs> so we look forward to the last day of school. The problem with that is it won't be very long before it's the first day of school again. <laughs> It's like all these people who write TGIF, thank God it's Friday. I always say, yeah, it's only two days from Monday. <laughs> Time is a wonderful provision from God. It's, he, he's blessed us with it. And, and he's given us all a certain amount of it. And you and I do not know how much. We know we've had this much, at least. But we don't know how much more we will have. It's different for every person. It's in the hands of God. And so the Israelites were to celebrate the passing of time. They were to celebrate the month just passed as a month in which God has blessed and God has been present. And they're to celebrate the month just beginning as one in which they would walk with God and his blessing would be upon him, upon, upon them. God's bountiful provision will continue as long as they walk faithfully with him. There's always that condition, always that condition. Throughout scripture, it's conditional. God's blessing is conditional upon his people's obedience. Let me read the next section here in uh, Numbers 28, beginning at verse 16. Then on the fourteenth day of the first month shall be the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of this month shall be a feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. You shall present an offering by fire, a burnt offering to the Lord. Two bulls, one ram, seven lamb, male lambs, uh, one year old, having them without defect. And for their grain offering, you shall offer fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for a bull, two-tenths for the ram, a tenth for, of an ephah you shall offer for each of the seven lambs. And one male goat for sin offering to make atonement for you. And you shall present these beside the burnt offering of the morning, which is for a continual burnt offering. After this manner, you shall present daily for seven days the food of the offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord, it shall be presented with its libation in addition to the continual burnt offering. And on the seventh day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. Well, as we've already noted, the Passover was instituted about 40 years before this time, on the night that the death angel struck in Egypt. And then a year later, when they were in the Sinai uh, desert, God had them perform the first memorial to commemorate the Passover there at the base of Mount Sinai. Subsequently, its annual practice was commanded in connection with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And it's briefly talked about in Leviticus chapter 23. But the details of the offering are first mentioned here in this particular passage, exactly how much oil and wine and what animals and so forth are part of this whole thing. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is given in detail here. The 14th of Nisan was to be the Passover. Nisan was the first month of the celebration calendar, of the worship calendar. As the Hebrews uh, went down through their centuries, they developed two parallel calendars. One was the civic calendar and the other was the worship calendar. And this was the first month of their celebration calendar. And on that day, the 14th day of that first month, they were to sacrifice the Passover lamb. This, of course, was in addition to the lamb that was slain in the morning and the lamb that was slain in the evening with regularity. The following week, this Feast of Unleavened Bread 
was to begin on the 15th and go on through the 21st of Nisan. And if you read the details there, you discover that the sacrifices that were to be made were the equivalent of the new moon sacrifices. That is, two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, and one goat, male goat. All in addition to the morning lamb and the evening lamb. And in addition to the Passover lamb, were these other sacrifices to be made. What is interesting here is that in this passage we're told that the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the 15th, was to be a holy convocation, as was the 21st, which was the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this holy convocation was not the same as Sabbath. They were to do no laborious work, yes, as on Sabbath. But what you discover is that it was mandatory for all males that had achieved bar mitzvah to attend to the tabernacle or later the temple for this entire, well, for the two convocations on the 15th and the 21st. All males in Israel had to come to the tabernacle for that holy convocation. And what is interesting is that the word translated holy convocation also means reading. So what this implies is when they came to the tabernacle, they didn't just come to the tabernacle to sing a hymn, which certainly they did, or psalms later, but they came to hear the reading of the Torah, the word of the Lord that came through Moses. They came to hear it on these holy convocations. So they heard it on the 15th. They heard it on the 21st as they gathered in God's presence. Now, think about this. You and I, generally speaking, can handle Sunday to Sunday. I mean, I can be at church on Sunday. I can be in church next Sunday, the Lord willing. And yet that doesn't hinder my job normally. But think of these people. They have, let's project it ahead a little bit. The tabernacle is in, is in Israel. And they're living all the way from northern Galilee down to the Negev. And God says, I want you here at the tabernacle on the 15th and I want you here on the 21st. So they come for the 15th. Now, what are they going to do? Are they going to go all the way home and come all the way back for the 21st? Not likely because of the length of time it took them to travel one, and what could they accomplish? So they stayed there the whole time. This, of course, begins to help us to understand the origin of the concept of Holy Day or what we call Holly Day, where they would take the whole week off. And they'd be there for the Holy Convocation on the 15th. They'd be there for the Holy Convocation on the 21st. And in between, they would have family time together. They would have worship time together. They would be gathered as a people in honor of the Lord their God. It was a kind of a break they needed in their society. Eating the unleavened bread, they would be, of course, reminded of their need of purification from sin, because as you well know, leaven in Scripture generally refers to sin, and the searching out of the leaven is uh, equivalent to eliminating sin, or at least acknowledging sin, and of course, of their deliverance from the bondage in Egypt. Well, let me just, uh, I think we have time to finish the chapter here. Verse 26, Numbers 28. Also on the day of the first fruits. When you present a new grain offering to the Lord in your Feast of Weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no labor laborious work. 
And you shall offer a burnt offering for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old. And their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, and one male goat to make atonement for you. Besides the continual offering and its grain offering, burnt offering and its grain offering, you shall present them with their libations. They shall be without defect. Introduced as early as the 23rd chapter of Exodus and described in some detail in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, we have the Feast of the First Fruits, sometimes also called the Feast or Festival of Weeks, W-E-E-K-S. The name Feast of the First Fruits comes from the fact that its timing was such that the very first product was beginning to ripen and to become available. And they were to bring the first of, of their soon-to-be harvest to the Lord during this Feast of First Fruits. It's also called the Feast of Weeks. And it's called the Feast of Weeks because it was a week of weeks after Passover. It was 50 days after Passover that this festival would be held. Now what's interesting is that the Greek word for 50 is Pentecost. And that term is used in the New Testament in describing this particular festival. We read in Acts 2.1, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now there are those who, of course, emphasize the repeating of the things which took place at that particular event as uh, sort of necessary important in in Christian living today. And the people who have done that have founded what is often referred to as the Pentecostal movement, which really simply means the 50 movement. So, you know, we could talk about the 50 movement, I suppose. Are we part of the 50 movement? Well, again, what we find here is that in addition to the daily offerings, morning and evening, morning and evening, without fail, the sacrifices of the new moon celebration were to take place. Plus, in this case, two lambs and two loaves of bread made from the first fruit grain and it was to be given as a wave offering before the Lord. The adult males, we're told in this passage, were required to come to the tabernacle for this feast also. This is one of the three feasts that all adult males were required to come to the tabernacle or later the temple for every year. It was, of course, a holy convocation. And it was very important for them because in doing this they were acknowledging that the work that they had put in would produce fruit because of the blessing of God. And if they received figs and grapes and if they received grain and lambs, it was because God had blessed them. He was the source of it all. And they came to worship God as the source of all their blessing and prosperity. When you look at all of this in detail, you see that God set it up perfectly so that these people throughout the year would re be reminded of God from whom all blessings flow and that it is to him that all praise is to be given and it is his nature that they should seek to replicate here on earth. I mean, that, that's the purpose behind this whole system that seems so complex and so bloody to us. 
but it has, it has great precision and, and great understanding for the people of that society. We're kind of squeamish today in our society because most of us don't have to actually go out and kill the, the cow that we're going to butcher and eat, you know, or kill whatever it is. I mean, many of you have done that. Some of you are hunters. But for most of us, you know, I, I, if I want a chicken for dinner, I don't go, I have to go out there and just pop the thing's head off, you know, and, and, or whatever you do. <laughs> and, and, and then pluck it and do all that stuff. You know, I, I think if I did that, I'd quickly become a vegetarian. <laughs> But, but we have to understand that in it all, it's not because God is a bloody God. Because as we've already read, that meant nothing to God if the heart was not right. What he wanted were hearts of obedience and repentance and commitment to him. And that's, of course, what he wants of us today, too. It's the same truth, old or new. God is immutable, meaning unchanged, unchangeable. Well, next uh, Sunday, we'll look at chapter 29.